Hey Nine Lives listeners, I'm your host, Avi Goldstein. In these dreary winter weeks, it may seem like the merry times of yestermonth will never resurface and springtime will never come. Do not fret though, this week's episode will focus on bringing back that holiday spirit, whether it's a time for awkward hugs with distant relatives, for celebrations with your loved ones, or for reminders of just how dysfunctional your family is, holidays always give us a reason to come together. Our first storyteller is Jake Curtis, a Northwestern junior studying radio, TV, and film. Here's Jake. Starting big, my great-grandpa Ernst escaped the Nazis and fled Austria for London, and he had this beautiful house uh, in Primrose Hill that he loved, but he missed home. And so on the weekends, he would go on trips to the British countryside, a different place each weekend, trying to find somewhere that reminded him of home. And eventually he found a tiny village on the east coast of England called Warberswick by the sea. And he bought a house there, and it's where my family has been ever since, every summer and every Christmas. And growing up, it felt like heaven. There's only one street, it's called The Street, because there aren't any others, and it meanders down the village with tree-lined lanes veering off it. Most of the houses are 18th century cottages with thatched roofs and wooden beams. There's a pub, it's painted baby blue and run by Sophie, who bursts out of the back with a new dish anytime anyone comes in, and Mark, who sits at the back drinking. And there's a beach and a dock, and Danny, the ferry lady, who rows people across the river for a pound, or a pound fifty if you've got a bike. And there's a village green with Wally, de facto mayor, who sits on his front porch, nodding at people as they go by. He built half the village, so he gets to it. And as a kid, it was perfect. Summers spent running in fields, riding horses, waving at the vicar, and he'd wave back. But it felt almost too perfect, too idyllic. And in a sense, it was, because as you grow up, you start to see the cracks. You start to see what's underneath the shine and the sparkle, the underbelly of the village. You find out that Sophie, the larger-than-life landlady of the pub, has a tendency to sleep with the 18-year-old work-experienced boys who show up every summer, while her husband Mark truly does take advantage of the free whiskey on tap. You find out that Danny, the fairy lady, runs a weekly drinking club with the vicar, the vicar's wife, and the butcher, and that on Wednesdays they get too drunk to walk home, and home is the other side of the street. And that Wally, as well as having built half the village, has also laid with half the wives of the village, and maybe that's why he nods at everyone. And this dark underside starts to shine through, and, and sometimes it's tough to see, and sometimes it's tough to come to terms with, and, and then it's Christmas. Or it was Christmas, two years ago. And for us, Christmas is big. There's about 50 of us in a barn, and there's a huge lunch, and after lunch, there's a talent show. The mums make a group, the dads, the boys, the girls, and the grannies judge. Now, to preface this, my dad is not a drinker. In fact, I'd never seen him drunk, but I'd heard rumors. There are legends of nights out. The night he proposed to three women, none of whom were my mother. It rings very frequent. And that day, sort of in the peripheries of my vision, I started seeing him, and he was starting early. He's just slamming back snowballs. And snowballs are sort of the English answer to eggnog if the question is, hey, we have an alcoholic custard, why don't you? And he's gunning them down. And it reaches the talent show, and I see the dads get up for their song, and my dad is just swaying, like a drunk candle in the wind. And they do their thing. They sing this Elvis song, uh, and it's not especially good. uh, And it goes to the judges, and Granny Jill says it was wonderful, and it wasn't. Uh, And Colleen says it was very good, and it really wasn't. And then it gets to Margaret. Now, if you've never met a 92-year-old communist with a thick head of blonde hair and the kind of weathered skin you could light a match off, 
then you haven't met Margaret. She's old and difficult and often tough to talk to. Anyway, it reaches Margaret and she just brings the hammer down. I didn't think it was very good, she says, and I see one of my dad's eyes begin to twitch. I thought the tuning was off, and my dad, my dad starts shaking a little bit. He, he's turned red, and he just starts shushing. He's just, shh, shh. And Margaret goes, no, I didn't think it was very good. And he goes, shush, shush. And he's really shaking at this point. And Margaret goes, I didn't think it was very good. But he's vibrating now. She goes, no, I thought it was very poor. And suddenly he snaps. Because there's as much of a dark underbelly to my family as there is to my village. Uh, up to this point, uh, Christmas, no one had mentioned that my 90-year-old granny had brought her 60-year-old boyfriend. No one had mentioned that Jack and Matt still aren't talking, or that Nick and Matt still aren't talking, or that Jill and Matt are only just talking. And my dad isn't saying anything. He's not from the side of the family that has all the troubles, and he isn't mentioning it. He's being a saint, but now he's drunk, and he's red, and he's shaking, and Margaret keeps just going, it's not good, it wasn't good, and eventually he snaps and he just screams, Margaret, shut the fuck up! And for a second, there's silence. And then the room erupts. The parents are screaming. The teenagers are screaming. The little kids are running around just chanting fuck. It's a new word and they've just learnt it. My dad, a very respected man, is dancing in a circle with his fingers in his ears going, I can't hear you, as a nonagenarian berates him on his singing talent. And it was chaos, and it was truth, and it was everything everyone had been feeling, and it was wonderful. And then it was done. We went back to lunch, everyone sat down, talked, the contest ended, the dads lost, and we didn't mention it again. Now, I'm not religious, but what I think is remarkable about Christmas isn't that we choose to forgive, but that we choose to forget, just for a moment. Because that night, as always, the whole village gathered around the Christmas tree in the middle of the village green, lit by candles, and decided to forget. To forget about what happens in the back rooms of the pub or the ferry, forget who's not talking to who and why, forget that my dad cursed out a woman almost on her deathbed. We stood around that tree and we sang carols, and the vicar led a brass band of all the young boys in the village. And the old ladies handed out mince pies that they'd made at home. And for a while, everyone was happy. Everyone was smiling and everything was good. And for me, that's the true miracle of Christmas, is that for one hour or for one day or for one week, we decide it's better to be civil than to be right. Our next story comes from Maddie Burton, a sophomore studying theater and neuroscience, here to tell us about how she brought holiday spirit to an unfamiliar place. So I guess I have grown up Jewish my whole life. I'm from a town called New Rochelle that is jokingly named Jew Rochelle because of the high Jewish population there. And on top of that, and go to the public school, I went to a private school called Solomon Schechter. It was a Jewish school, so half of our studies would be secular, half religious. The other language that I know is Hebrew. I took Bible classes and rabbinical studies. All these sort of things that really shaped who I am and the values there are definitely things that I still really care about. And my parents are very big proponents of Jewish 
identity, I guess. Those things have always really been a part of me. In 10th grade, when I went away from all that for the first time to go on a summer program at Brown, I was definitely worried about, you know, what people would think about meeting a Jew for the first time, which is weird for me because I, you know, have just been around Jewish people forever. So I never really thought about that being a problem until then. And then it was a program about 20, 25 people. I was one of two Jewish people on the program, which already that is like a pretty... I guess high population, but for me it was like very shocking because I came from such a Jewish upbringing and I was definitely nervous about just sort of making the right impression and, and making sure that everyone sort of saw me as just like a regular person, whatever. But I also found it really comforting to have this other Jewish person there and we were talking about Shabbat and like what that meant to us. Shabbat is every Friday night. Some people tend to turn off electricity and just like have a day of rest. Other people don't. I I don't. I am a conservative Jew, which means I sort of am part of the pick and choose Judaism. So that's like just not a thing that my family and I keep doing, but we still definitely value it as like a day of rest. And we have family dinners every Friday night and we light the candles, which is, you know, traditional and plus the wine and the challah, which is this braided bread that's the best thing in the entire world period the end there is no argument that is the best food on this planet and I was definitely sad that I wasn't gonna have Shabbos dinner with my family every Friday whatever so I was talking about this with my friend Jen the other Jew on the program other people heard us talking about Shabbat and they were like oh what's that want to check it out whatever we were like okay it's Friday night it's four o'clock you know Shabbos time is coming up let's do this I mean we didn't have candles we couldn't light candles in the dorm we didn't have wine because we were underage and didn't want to get in trouble and we didn't have challah of course because who has a Jewish mother on this program to make it for us and so we went to this like dingy little store at the end of the street and got hot dog buns for challah and one of those little minute made grape juices for wine or grape juice or whatever and we were like and anyone who wants to come over can come over and so what I thought was just gonna end up being me and Jen and my dorm room ended up being the entire program coming into my room we like got to teach them like all of these Shabbat songs that I've grown up loving and listening to all the time. I taught every single person. Everyone still knows it. Sometimes I'll get FaceTimes from people just to sing it. Um, it goes a little something like this. There's a dinosaur knocking at my door. Knocking one, two, three. There's a dinosaur knocking at my door. And he's come to spend Shabbat with me. And some people on the program were like half Jewish or like tangentially Jewish or Jew-ish. And, you know, they sort of remembered some of the tunes, which was like really cool because, I don't know, it just reminded me how important community is to Judaism. It also was really special to like not have it be mandated and be something that I sought because, you know, we kind of got graded on how Jewish we were. So to be able to be like, I'm just doing this for me because I wanted to have a communal moment of like it's Friday and I want to mark this day and I want to connect with my people all around the world doing the same thing and share it with other people that was just really special to me and then every Friday night they requested to have Shabbat again so we did it every single Friday night for the whole program it was just the coolest thing to be like the person that made that community thing happen and like have it be because of my religion and my connection to all of those values I don't know it was really special I'll never forget it Our final story comes from one of our beloved members of Nine Lives, Elizabeth Vogt. She's majoring in English and minoring in radio, TV, and film. Here's Elizabeth. So there are these candies that start to appear on grocery store shelves kind of in early spring around Easter time. 
and they're called marshmallow peeps. They're these marshmallows shaped like bunnies or chicks, and they're coated in bright colored sugar. If you grew up celebrating Easter, you probably found them inside plastic eggs during Easter egg hunts. My association with peeps doesn't really have anything to do with Easter, but they have a very, very special place in my heart. In 2008, my family saw an ad in our local paper, the Washington Post. There was this new competition that they were rolling out for the Easter season. They were hoping that readers would make dioramas themed with something from current events or something people had read in the news, a historical event. But the one rule was that all of the characters in the diorama had to be marshmallow peeps. My dad especially was very excited about the prospect of us making dioramas to enter into this contest. Every birthday he'd make us these amazingly decorated cakes with like our favorite cartoon characters and he always writes really cool fonts. He's just very creative. I always notice how he wrote in all caps and he told me once that it was because when he was a little kid, his dream was to be an architect. My sisters and I didn't always agree on things, as we still don't, but we decided that we would each make our own dioramas. And we worked for the good part of a weekend, and the result was sort of scrappy-looking dioramas, but they were pretty cute, and we figured that we had a pretty good shot. We assumed that this was like an amateur contest that mostly kids were going to enter, it turns out that we could not have been more wrong about the contest. The morning that the results came out, Easter morning, there was a huge blown up picture of the winning diorama that year. There's this scene in the famous Marilyn Monroe film, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. This DC artist had recreated the scene down to the tiniest detail. There was this amazing peep in the middle that was supposed to be Marilyn wearing this pink satin gown and peeps wearing tuxedos standing up and down the stairs. It was amazing and of course, the title was Peeps Are a Girl's Best Friend. There were also other amazing dioramas that were featured in the article that day that had punny titles like The Grim Peeper and Peeping Tom. Needless to say, we had no idea what we had gotten ourselves into and we were completely blown away by these incredible dioramas. But instead of taking the results as a sign that we should bow out of the contest, which was clearly dominated by professional creatives and artists, my dad saw it as an opportunity to try again the next year. This time we would have a standout concept, we would have a well-devised plan, and very focused production. We decided to pool our efforts into one collective one, and we started working on a concept much earlier, a few months in advance of Easter. We finally settled on this idea that we would recreate the first lunar landing. My dad encouraged me and my sisters to do sketches, we went out to the craft store and bought lots of supplies, and my other two sisters, Emily and Lucy, kind of quickly lost interest. They had other things going on, and I was just especially invested in working on this with my dad. We spent so many hours in the basement that year, every single weekend, trying to figure out how we were going to build this spacecraft and a lunar lander, and using things we were finding in the kitchen, like funnels and containers, and spraying them with silver spray paint. I started to get so, so invested in this project. My dad really encouraged me to focus on the little details, and there were certain parts of the project that he delegated to me and said, you'll do this better than I will. And I think that really gave me a lot of confidence and motivation to make this really amazing. So we finished the diorama and finally settled on our title, which was, that's one small step for a peep, one giant leap for peep kind. My dad reminded me we probably had slim chances of making the top 40, which was how many winners they would pick every year. We knew that the contest had been super popular the year before. The readers had absolutely gone crazy for it, and there were going to be way, way more entries this year. 
even so, I think my dad really, really wanted to win. I mean, he had sacrificed so much of his time off of work sitting in the basement with me working on this project. And the morning came finally that the results were going to come out and we opened the paper and there was a tiny little picture of our diorama. Our names were written in the margins. I remember I was so excited about that. And they also put a picture of our diorama on the website. It was something that was so thrilling just because we had this moment of glory. But also I think the process that year of making that diorama was really special for me because I got to spend all this time with my dad. We were able to make something that we were proud of and that my dad had given me a lot of ownership of. For the next four years, we submitted entries to the competition, and four of the five total entries we had submitted made the top 40 winners. The next year, we made a diorama called Beach Peeps. So this one was inspired by a classic Beach Boys album. My dad spent hours trying to recreate the font that was on the album cover so that it looked exactly the same. The year after that, we did a diorama called The Peep Stones, which was inspired by the TV show The Flintstones. And then our final diorama, which was probably the most involved and complicated, but definitely our best, was called LL Peep. So this diorama was celebrating the outdoor clothing brand L.L. Bean on their 50th anniversary. And my family loves L.L. Bean. We go to Maine every summer. It definitely has a special place in our hearts. We made this crazy lake in the center of the diorama and had peeps canoeing across it. We made this mountain with peeps rock climbing and belaying off the side. We made every single kind of camping equipment item you could think of out of Sculpey. We had tackle boxes and canteens and little bean boots and s'mores. And L.L. Bean actually found a picture of it and reposted it on their Facebook page the day the winners came out. That diorama was particularly labor-intensive, and it was just so absurdly complicated that I think after that year we had sort of had our fill, and so we kind of retired. It was such a funny and random thing that we all got into this whole contest and I think the best part was that I learned so much about my dad. I saw a lot of aspects of him that I knew were there but I saw them in a totally new light in this creative situation. He's always been a perfectionist but I would see this before the Peeps project as his obsessive labeling of everything in our house or the fact that he was really good at making spreadsheets. I just knew that he was really committed to carrying out tasks from start to end, never cutting corners and he had this trait in his work. But when I saw this perfectionism in a creative realm, I realized it was the reason that our dioramas were successful. He wasn't going to let any detail go amiss, and in the end, it was the combination of lots of little things that made a really powerful piece of art. It's something that's, I think, relevant to my artwork that I do now in my writing, and can really apply to any situation, just that Perfectionism and attention to detail is not at odds with creativity. It's actually something that can really bring creativity out. And it's funny to look on it um, years later and think about all those hours and weeks and months that we spent working on the dioramas. And we still have them in our basement in some cupboard. I sometimes go look at them. But what really stays with me from the whole experience is not really just the dioramas themselves or even remembering those little moments of glory that came along with when we heard it, that we got into the contest. It's the confidence and the perfectionism and creative passion that my dad helped me find within myself as we made this thing together that we were so fiercely proud of.
Thanks to our listeners and storytellers for sharing and spreading the love this not-so-holiday season. And remember, all cats have nine lives. Share one of yours.